Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. Our reading today comes from John chapter 19. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the second week in our stewardship series. So last week we talked about our calling to care for creation, looking at Genesis. And this week, we're looking at our calling to care for family. And it's pretty obvious, just listening to that short reading, that's what Jesus is doing there in this scene from the cross. He's caring for his mother. Now, you probably know this was in a patriarchal society, and so women in general, they had less power, they had less rights, and so it was expected for an adult male in the family to take responsibility to care for a woman in the family if she was widowed or if she was unmarried. So making sure that your widowed mother was taken care of, that was the honorable thing to do. What's surprising about this is despite the fact that Jesus had brothers, he had other adult male relatives in the family, he chooses someone outside of the family, at least the traditional family, to fill this role. So practically, this is a way for Jesus to care for his mother, but also it's this symbolic act to show us the nature of the church. This is the way that true Christian community is supposed to be. You may start out as strangers, but when the church is at its best, we don't stay that way. This community that forms should become a family. Now we know that churches don't always live up to that calling, but Families also don't always live up to that calling either to take care of each other. Actually, if we go way back to Genesis, we find that the first act of evil, it happens within a family. And it's funny to me that throughout the history of Christianity, we focus a lot of time on chapter 3 of Genesis, on the fall, right? Where they eat the forbidden fruit and they're kicked out of the garden, they disobey God. And that story may show us something about the origin of sin, but it's not really an act of evil yet. Because think about it, Adam and Eve, they're tricked into eating that fruit, and the fruit is from the tree that gives knowledge of good and evil. In other words, before they ate it, they didn't know any better, right? They didn't know what good and evil was. So it's a little hard to just blame someone for making the wrong choice before they know what right and wrong is. So the point is, this is an important origin story, but it's more complicated, it's more nuanced than what we give it credit for. But the first act of evil is very straightforward. It's in the next chapter, chapter four, when Cain murders his brother out of jealousy. And we're told in the text that Cain is a farmer and his brother Abel is a shepherd, And so these two people, they represent the two different ways of life in the ancient world. And when they give their offerings to God, for whatever reason, Abel's offering is more pleasing to God than Cain's offering is. And that's enough to set Cain 
off and he gets angry. Now, sometimes I think we get this picture that Cain just like snapped and in a fit of rage just hit his brother with a rock. Well, it doesn't say that. Actually, he has time to think it through. It even says that God gives Cain this warning. Here's what God tells Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Like you don't have to do what you're thinking about doing. Of course, Cain doesn't listen, and so he lures his brother out into a field and he murders him. And then when God confronts Cain about it, Cain gives that infamous answer. Let's see. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother, Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, if you are looking for the origin of evil in the Bible, there it is. It's whenever we ask that question, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for the life and the well-being of my brother, of other people? Because if I'm not, well, then we're all on our own. We just have to look out for ourselves. But the point of this story is that Cain may not get it, but the obvious answer is yes. You absolutely are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for what happens with his life. And it's not just in this moral sense of what's right and wrong. There's also this practical sense of what happens to your brother is going to have consequences for you. And that's what God shows Cain. God shows him that you are connected whether you want to admit it or not. Here's what God says. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. And then remember that Cain is the farmer. It go, God goes on to say that the ground, the land, will no longer bear crops for you. And so you are going to have to live the rest of your life as a wanderer and a fugitive because of what you have done to your brother. And do you know what the next story is in Genesis after this? So there's a bunch of genealogies that make you go to sleep, but then you wake back up, and the next story after Cain and Abel is the flood, the most horrifying story in all of the Bible, I think. That after this wickedness of Cain, the wickedness of humankind becomes so widespread, God decides to start over and flood the earth. And it all stems from failing to understand that, yes, you are your brother's keeper. What happens to other people and what you do to other people, it affects both of you. And actually, it's not just both of them. If you think about that story, it's not just Cain and Abel who get affected. It's the ongoing future generations that have to deal with these consequences. It starts with one murder within one family, and then quickly it leads to a world that is filled with violence. See, and there's the sad truth of this story. Violence and apathy when you don't care, these things have a way of escalating and getting out of control very quickly. And we see this all over in our world, don't we? Hatred and mistrust and violence and apathy, they're not just experienced, they are taught, they are passed down from generation to generation, and it's this endless cycle. And because of this endless cycle, you start to see people who are generally optimistic, who are caring and compassionate, and they look at things in the world and they say, there is no hope for things to actually get better. 
Our political divisions, no way. There's no way that changes. Our racial divisions, it's too complicated. We're not going to solve it. And then we look to places around the world. We look at a place like Haiti, where we support this organization in Haiti, right? And we think it's great. And there has been now some international attention, but still it's hard to see how things are really going to get better. I mean, the corruption is so bad, it is a failed state over there. It's hard to believe that they can ever return from that. And then, of course, there's this other place that we're all thinking about if you listen to the news at all. We're all horrified at what we've seen in Israel and in Gaza. I mean, the last I heard, at least 1,300 Israelis that were killed in that attack by Hamas. And the scale of this and the brutality is just... It's hard to even understand what has been done. And then it's important to remember that Hamas does not represent all of the Palestinian people. I got to go there in 2015 with a trip with the seminary. And our guide, a man named Khalil, was from Palestine. He and his family live in Ramallah in the West Bank. And Khalil would talk to us about the politics of the area. And his take was always, over and over again, he would tell us, violence should never be the answer. And we look at the history of what's happened in this conflict, and the violence only makes things worse. He told us that what he wants, just like a lot of people he knows, is for all Israelis and Palestinians to live in peace and dignity. Now, a lot of us would say, yes, that's a great idea, but there's no way it's going to happen. It's too far gone. There's too much deep-seated hate and violence and evil. There's no way diplomacy is going to solve anything. And honestly, it's hard to argue with that view right now. I mean, how can we come back from that? Now, I want to be careful here not to oversimplify a really complicated situation. There's this temptation, I think, as outsiders to look down on people in conflict and to think, well, if they were just better people, they would figure this out, right? If they could just see each other as brothers and sisters, then they would all get along. It's more complicated than that. The reality of this region is so much more complicated than what we can get from reading a few articles. You know, the, the history of this region, it goes back so long. Our guide, he has a family home that's shared within their extended family. And it's in the old city of Jerusalem. And he says that it's been in their family since the 15th century, the 1400s. This family home in Jerusalem has belonged to this Palestinian family. There is no easy answer to how to bring peace and reconciliation in the Middle East. So what can we do? I think that as Christians, the only thing we really can do is turn to Jesus. So let's think about Jesus. He was born in this really messy, complicated political reality. He's a first century Jew living under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And at the time, there were plenty of Jewish people just trying to live in peace, trying to keep things calm the way they were. And there were people like the Zealots. The Zealots were Jews that would have thought of themselves as freedom fighters and the Romans would have called terrorists who were trying to violently overthrow the Romans. And actually, you see, during Jesus' lifetime, this zealot group is gaining more support. 
When Jesus has his trial, there are these two criminals, Jesus and Barabbas, and the crowd chooses to release Barabbas. And do you know who he was? It says he was a rebel. He was one of these violent revolutionaries, and that's who the crowd sides with. Let's go with this violent movement, not with this peaceful one. And that's kind of how it ends up going if you look at history. Just a generation later, this, the violent ones, they get enough support to lead a full-scale revolt to try and kick out the Romans. It started in the year 68. And if you are ever in Rome, I challenge you to go right outside the Colosseum and see the Arch of Titus. It's right there. And if you see one of the things that's depicted here, the reason they built this, was to honor how the Romans squashed that Jewish rebellion. And so they came in in the year 70 and destroyed the temple. And what's depicted on this arch is all these Roman soldiers carrying out the sacred artifacts of the temple. You see the menorah there and the Ark of the Covenant, and these were all their spoils of war. So that's a generation after Jesus dies. So he is existing in the middle of this absolute political mess that's going on in the background. And Jesus is dying in the middle of all that stuff going on, and he shows that he still cares for his family, and he extends the definition of who belongs in the family. He tells his mother, who is about to lose a son, look, right beside you, this person, this disciple who I trust, who I love, he is your son. And then Jesus turns to the disciple and says, look, this is now your mother. You have responsibility for her. And he takes it seriously. It says that from that moment on, this disciple took Mary to live with him in his home. So they are in the middle of this moment where the movement should have ended. The Romans, they're killing the leader. They're scattering the followers. This should be it. And Jesus is like, all right, the family is growing. Welcome to the church. You're going to need each other now more than ever. And this actually isn't the first time that Jesus tries to expand our view of what counts as family. There's this time where he's teaching to a crowd, and someone comes in and says, Jesus, your mom and your brothers, they want a word with you. And here's what Jesus says. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So he's not excluding his family. He's showing, no, my family is a lot bigger than this, and so is yours. This week I was talking with Greta and Amelia about this idea of this expanded view of a church family. And immediately Greta said, well, I know exactly what that looks like. I've seen it with my kids. Greta's kids have grown up here at Peace, and earlier this year, a beloved longtime member, Mary Westinghouse, died, and Greta said that her kids who grew up here, they always knew Mary Westinghouse as Grandma Mary. Was she related to them? No. And that didn't matter, because she was a part of the church family. To them, she was always Grandma Mary. I had an experience like that recently, too. So this is a picture of Margaret Allen with my family over at Inniswood Gardens. 
And this was what that announcement was about next week. Margaret and Dennis are leading a prayer walk there. So if you're free next Sunday afternoon, you really should check it out. It's, it's amazing. Um, but the date that they happened to pick that worked for Margaret and Dennis was a date where my family's gonna be out of town. And so I told Margaret, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to miss it, I'm really bummed. And she said, don't worry, we'll take a night and I will give your family a tour. And within the first five minutes, I think, Margaret had to put aside 90% of what she was gonna share because we have a two and a five-year-old and they have a little bit different attention span than some others. But it was a wonderful, wonderful evening. And as I was looking at moments like this, I thought, here is just another grandparent. Here is somebody who is caring enough to spend some time with my family, to meet my kids where they're at. And it doesn't matter that we're not related. Margaret was part of the church family. One of our goals as a staff this year at Peace is we're trying to figure out how to make more of these kind of connections across the generations. Because here's one of our struggles. We have been saying when, whenever we try to make an intergenerational event, something for all ages, that this is something for families of all shapes and sizes. And no matter how many times we try to expand that definition, a lot of people hear family and you think, okay, that means people with young kids who still live at home. And if you don't fit into that, then that's not really for you. Now, of course, we do have things that are separated by stage of life because sometimes that's a good thing to be around people whose experiences are similar to you. But one of the really valuable things about being in the church, this is one of those rare places where we can also have surrogate grandparents and we can have surrogate children and we can have friendships develop among people who otherwise never in their life would have interacted but they come together here. So at Peace, we're gonna try to rebrand intergenerational ministry just to be clear about this. And so whenever you see something that's a connect event, that's the goal, an opportunity to bring together people of all walks of life. So if you are a single adult, this is for you. If you are an adult with kids or grandparent, grandkids, this is for you. If you are a kid, if you have no kids, right? This is for you. These are meant to be for everyone. So next week, that prayer walk that I was just talking about, we want that to be a connect event. We would love it if people from all different walks of life would come together and walk and pray in this beautiful place. And then the next week after that, we have something that you might think is just for people with kids, and it's not. We actually had someone ask this, is it okay if I decorate a trunk even though I don't have a kid? I have a grandkid who might come, that counts. You do not have to have a kid or a grandkid. If you like Halloween, you like candy, come. Be a part of this, right? This is for everyone. So be on the lookout for these kind of connect events. But here's how I want to end. If we start to actually live this out, this idea of church family, what if that's not the end? What if it's just the beginning? What if we don't stop just with our church family? What if we start to see the whole world is filled with our brothers and our sisters and our grandparents and our children? Maybe then, maybe then that healing and that reconciliation isn't so far out of reach after all.